great. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming back to the second lecture this term. Um, my play today is Ben Johnson's play, The Alchemist. So it's hard not to like a play that begins, I fart at thee. And indeed, lots of people have liked The Alchemist very much. It was identified by Coleridge in the 18th century as one of the three most perfect plots ever devised. In case you're interested, the others were Sophocles' Oedipus and Fielding's Tom Jones. Reviewers of modern revivals have routinely praised its structure, its plotting and its humour. The veteran theatre critic Michael Billington called it the funniest play in English. From the large number of Ben Jonson plays that are extant, Jonson wrote a lot of plays, only really a couple of them have made it through the curious winnowing process of canonisation in the modern repertoire. That process is quite an interesting phenomenon in itself. Uh, and I guess The Alchemist is really first now among Johnson's plays. Maybe the other one or two would be Volpone and perhaps Bartholomew Fair. Johnson's <coughs> characteristically grumpy and intellectually swaggering epigraph to The Alchemist is a tweaked version of Horace. Uh, he uses it again as the epigraph for the whole of his folio edition of his works in 1616. Translated into English, the tag means, I must not strive to catch the wonder of the crowd, but be content with few readers. Be content with few readers. It turns out not to have been strictly true. Or at least, uh, he must be content with fewer readers of plays like, say, The New Inn or Poetaster. In another way, though, maybe Johnson was right. He needed to be content with few readers. Even though Johnson, as we'll go on to talk about, was uniquely attentive to readers in the preparation of his dramatic texts for print publication, so almost more than any other writer, dramatic writer of this period, he's interested in the idea of a readership, not just printed plays as a kind of uh, secondary spin-off from the theatre. Even despite that, his plays, I think, have been thought much better on the stage than the page. The late 20th century playwright Peter Barnes speaks for uh, many other critics, I think, noting that on stage his seemingly heavy, clotted verse unfolds like a Japanese paper flower in water. So The Alchemist has had a kind of theatrical currency that's far transcended its original production in 1610. And in this lecture I want to try and hold on to two different approaches. One that's kind of but a bit more timeless, a bit more formal, uh, and one that's more historical. For the first, I want to try and attend to dramaturgy and to some of the play's features that, that I think have kept it in the theatrical repertoire. But I also want to try to argue that that structure, those themes, and particularly the play's characteristic sense of dramatic urgency, it's a very fast play, are all deeply historical and historically specific. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is the idea of theatricality and metatheatricality, the play's own consciousness of itself as theatre and of its effect on its audience. The second thing I want to talk about is the historical reality of plague and the pressures of plague-stricken London on this play, and that maybe by extension we might suggest some of the ways that perennial climate of urban disease across the early modern period makes its presence felt in the literature of that period. 
So Johnson's play is structured around and by the reality of plague. The first known performance of The Alchemist is here in Oxford in the late summer of 1610. This late summer of 1610 is probably Oxford's only claim to, uh, the, the, to, to a kind of ringside seat in the theatrical innovations of the early modern period. Most of the time in the records of the city, the city pays the players to keep away uh, they're worried about uh, disturbances. And on the other hand, the university performs interminable, dull, Latin academic drama. So Oxford is a terrible place uh, for drama. You may, think, you may think we've never quite recovered. So um, the King's Men brought The Alchemist and Shakespeare's Othello in late summer 1610, performed it at the Guild Hall, the site of the modern town hall. Henry Jackson, a pious young man who had recently taken his MA from Corpus Christi, noted in a Latin letter about the performances that the theatre was full. Um, interestingly, the, the authorities, as I've said, were ambivalent about touring theatre. Students were usually forbidden or at least discouraged from attending, but they obviously went in large numbers. Jackson preferred the tragedies in the repertoire. We don't know what else they were besides Othello. Uh, he thought these were performed with decorum and fitness, but he rather regretted Johnson's satire of the Protestant Anabaptists in The Alchemist, complaining that to hold up the false sanctity of the Anabaptists before the spectators as an object of derision impiously and monstrously sullied scripture. Impiously and monstrously <coughs> sullied scripture. Perhaps we've never been able to take a joke about things we believe in strongly. The King's Men were on tour in Oxford in 1610 because plague had closed the London theatres. The same plague that within the play has driven the master Lovewit from his London house to the Kentish countryside and allowed Subtle and Face instead to set up their trickery. The Alchemist did not open in London until the theatres <coughs> reopened in the autumn. So there's an immediate paradox which we're going to keep coming back to. The plague that enables the play's characters to bring about their theatrical tricks prevents the play itself being performed. And we'll see that interplay between the fiction and the context in which the fiction uh, occurs as we go through this lecture. It may well be that the text of the play that we have <coughs> is from its London premiere in November 1610. The fictional date on which the play takes place seems to be the 1st of November 1610. Perhaps this was also the date of its opening performance. There's a real sense of immediacy that what we're seeing is really happening right at the same time as we're watching it. Lots of time references fix the play in the autumn of 1610. Um, there are uh, arrangements about how long it's going to take for the uh, Philosopher's Stone, for the elixir, to be delivered, for instance. Dame Pliant refers to the Spanish Armada that was three years before she was born, making her birth date 1591, and she's now said to be 19 years old, 1610. So the, the play world and the audience world, that's to say, are coterminous in a particular twist on Aristotelian unity of time. So we don't just get the unity of time, that the play world is consistent uh, in its temporal axis, but that it is also coterminous with the real world outside the play. And therefore, the, the alchemist as we have it, notwithstanding that premiere in Oxford, 
appears to be a London fiction for a London audience, reflecting closely their own world back to them. The prologue tells us, our scene is London, because we would make known no country's mirth is better than our own. But this apparent uh, local patriotism is immediately uh, undercut. Um, no climb breeds better matter for your whore, bored squire, imposter, many persons more, whose manners, now called humours, feed the stage. So our country's mirth, no country's mirth is better than our own, no climb breeds better matter for your whore, bored squire, imposter, many persons more. Okay, so Johnson seems to be saying uh, London is the best of everywhere, and then he says it's the best of everywhere for this kind of low life. So his play with immediacy is one of his most engaging and complicated dramaturgical techniques. The Alchemist is about a series of contracts in which various contemporary London characters, a clerk, a tobacconist, a knight, a country gentleman, some religious fundamentalists, they're all gulled by their own desires into believing that what they want can be supplied by the alchemists at a price. Face, subtle, and the third member of their venture tripartite, doll. In fact, these three tricksters have no alchemical or other knowledge. They're merely exploiting and repackaging the wishes of their customers and selling them back to them. The plot shows how these different tricks on different individuals require different uh, pretenses, and therefore it offers the chance for various impersonations and different personae by, by the three rogues particularly by face uh, and subtle. There's a sense of a sort of bravura performance here. These, this, this is a play written for uh, an, an extremely, a pair of extremely talented uh, improvisatory actors. So we get these different impersonations and different personae, as well as split-second timing, as the increasingly frenetic demands of the customers all start to merge together. Now, the play was most likely to have been performed at Blackfriars, the indoor theatre which had been put into service by the King's Men a couple of years previously. Compared to the Globe, Blackfriars was a theatre characterised by more illusionistic staging, aided particularly by controlled lighting. Okay, it's a great theatre for showing interior space. It is itself an interior space. Uh, and the plays that are developed for, for Blackfriars uh, tend to have a real emphasis on uh, uh, domestic or courtly um, architectural interiors. <coughs> it's also characterised by a, so a more socially homogenous audience than we believe to have been the case at the outdoor playhouses. Blackfriars was considerably smaller and more expensive than the Globe, factors which combined, I think, to give it a more elite or boutique feel. It's perhaps an early step in the gradual but inexorable elevation of the theatre from plebeian to aristocratic that takes place through the 17th century. We might think that gets one of its high points when theatre comes back with the monarchy in 1660. This sense of a more privileged and wealthy audience for the play seems particularly appropriate for The Alchemist. It's a play about people's willingness to believe in play-acting scenarios and their willingness to hand over money to virtuoso performers. That's what Castrol and Dapper and Drugger do within the alchemist's fiction, and it's also what the judging spectators Johnson addresses in his prologue do too. 
they too pay money to watch good performances. And as a reference in the play's first scene makes clear, The Alchemist takes place in the Blackfriars district where the theatre itself is located. So as we watch a series of brilliantly improvisatory scenes in which men are gulled out of their money by a combination of costumes, accents, clever dialogue and superb plotting, that's to say, we too are drawn into this gullible economy by giving our money to be gulled by costumes, accents, clever dialogue and superb plotting. Perhaps then, in the end, the joke is actually on us. We are the girls coming to this house of pretense. We are the ones who pay good money to be made fools of. What, the, uh, what, what those patsies of the alchemists do, which is to believe in a kind of Blackfire's dream factory, turns out to be exactly what we as audience members do too. <coughs> when the fun is over at the end of the play... Lovewit sees the house for what it is when it is stripped of the imaginative creation of performance. It's like an empty theatre, abandoned, eerily quiet after the show. Here I find the empty walls worse than I left them, smoked. A few cracked pots and glasses and a furnace, the ceiling filled with poses of the candle, and Madame with a dildo writ on the walls. So when human energy has left the stage, that's to say we see it for it is. A few lifeless props, an empty space, a bit of pornographic graffiti. Um, The dildo seems in some ways the absolute um, epitome of the absence of the human, the absence of human agency. So it's a very Johnsonian technique to be rather disdainful, even aggressive, towards his theatre audience. You're very, very grown up not to laugh at that. But maybe that's... Okay, fine. Okay, it's a very Johnsonian technique to be disdainful, even aggressive, towards his theatre audience, even as he's often elaborately polite to his readership. Again, then, Johnson's a really interesting test case for thinking about the different status of performed and read drama, as well as about the development of uh, drama as a printed or literary form. So as just a short digression, let me think. I've got a couple of other Johnson texts that I want to talk about a bit briefly today. Uh, And the first is this one, Epicene, or The Silent Woman. I'm just bringing this in to think about Johnson's uh, attitude to his audience, a a slight air of contempt uh, or of disdain towards that audience. So Johnson's Epicene uh, was performed a few months earlier than The Alchemist. It's another play about commercialism conspicuous consumption, and social competition. But the central plot here is that Morose, character Morose, a rich old man who hates noise, has been tricked by his nephew, who doesn't want to be disinherited by Morose having any children. He's been tricked into marrying the title character Epicene. He's been persuaded that Epicene is a silent woman, as the title says. As soon as they're married, of course, Epicene shows that she's not silent at all. She drives him mad with a general racket, uh, uh, friends, uh, pots and pans, every, every kind of noise she can make, she makes. Distracted to despair, Morose bargains that he will get rid of his wife. Whereupon, she's revealed that not to be a young woman after all, but a boy. It's a great coup de théâtre because it comes as a complete shock to us as it does to Morose. 
unless, of course, we've been particularly attentive to that Latin term, epicene, meaning ambiguously gendered or androgynous. Well, it's a sort of a complete shock. Of course, if you went to the theatre at all in 1609 or 1610, you would know that all female characters were played by male actors. But you would also probably think that you had to suppress that knowledge in order to support the play's uh, kind of fiction. Many plays would be spoilt if we were shouting out at their marriages. You do know she's really a boy, don't you? So our willing suspension of disbelief in accepting as conventional the maleness of female characters is, in Epicene, thrown back in our faces. It's hard not to feel a bit silly to have not known or to have known and thought we were supposed not to know that this fact was relevant to the play's plot. So perhaps there's something similar going on in The Alchemist. We think we are watching other people be tricked, but in the end, the real trick is on us. Johnson's prologue begins with a description of his method. The play will depict such natural follies, but so shown as even the doers may see and yet not own. So people may recognise these follies, but not own them, not see that they themselves are implicated. In a book of commonplaces based on his reading, published under the title Timber or Discoveries, Johnson noted how we take pleasure in the lie and are glad we can cousin ourselves. And in the preface to the reader, in the quarto text of The Alchemist, uh, writing a preface to the reader we might think is uh, a really good sign of Johnson's concern for readers in, as a distinct category of audience. <coughs> in that preface to the reader, he warns, Thou wert never more fair in the way to be cousined than in this age in poetry, especially in plays. If we put these two statements together, we can see A, that we enjoy being cousined, and B, that art, particularly drama, is the most likely form in which this will happen. It's a, either a promise or a warning as we enter the theatre or settle to our reading. Perhaps we're supposed to think that the real magic here, then, is not the illusory claims of alchemy, but the complex transformations and transmutations by which theatrical-based metals, a stage, actors, propped, script, combine to produce golden effects. Remember Philip Sidney's alchemical apology for poetry. Art improves on nature, said Sidney, since her world is brazen, so nature's world is brazen, Poets only deliver a golden. So the, art, the, the apology for poetry, Sidney argues that art is gold where nature is uh, base, is, is bronze. Alchemy then becomes a metaphor for stagecraft. The true alchemy is theatre. Writing of his 1991 production of the play at the Royal Shakespeare Company, Sam Mendes argued... For me, the alchemist is about the alchemy of making something out of nothing in an empty room. The alchemy of making something out of nothing in an empty room. So Mendes is right, of course, uh, and there are lots of ways in which the real alchemy uh, that Johnson is thinking about is the transformative power of his own art. But I think Mendes is only partly right. 
The point about Johnson's alchemists is not that they are idealistically or aspirationally struggling to perfect Kabbalistic arts, rather that they are playing on their customers' veniality to make money. One question that's often asked about this play is whether it's sceptical about alchemical claims in general. I don't think it is. The point about Face and Subtle is that they're fake alchemists, not that alchemy is always fake. Johnson's wide read, reading in arcane alchemical literature seems to suggest he's taking his research seriously, as, of course, did many <coughs> contemporary scientists. And the language of alchemy, particularly in Subtle's conversation with Mammon in Act 2, Scene 1, shows real knowledge of this arcane world. So although there's a kind of reality effect about the play's language of alchemy, it's a convincing scam, that's to say. In a way, the tricksters could be doing anything. When Lovewit comes back to his house, he acknowledges this. He wonders if they've set up a freak show or a flea circus or a cure for toothache, any con trick that might draw in the punters. But I think the reason uh, the, the alchemists are performing alchemy, or purporting to, to, to perform alchemy, is because of the metaphorical resonances of that art. And one of those resonances uh, connects alchemy not just with theatre, but with money. Karl Marx described capital exchange as the great social retort into which everything is thrown. Nothing is immune from this alchemy. The great social retort into which everything is thrown. Nothing is immune from this alchemy. Capitalism is distinctly alchemical in that it changes matter, stuff, things, into gold. Uh, that's the basis of Marxist theories of use value to exchange value. You change something which is useful into something which can be exchanged, gold. Early modern London was rapidly developing as a capitalist economy, and while it had not transmuted base metals into gold, it was, as economic historians tell us, experiencing inflationary pressures because of the large amount of gold coming into the economy from the new world. In Johnson's play, alchemy is part of, as well as being a metaphor for, a deeply commercial enterprise for face, subtle and dull. They talk about their work in the economic terms of venture and commodity. The underworld here is a distinctly capitalist economy in which three shareholders split the company profits. That is, before Face dupes them at the end and cleans up. We might say that was distinctly capitalist also. Again, the economic model is in part theatrical. Probably the most immediate example of a shareholder company to Johnson at the time of writing would have been the King's Men, the, king, the, the acting company for whom he was writing the play, and for which he, unlike Shakespeare and many of the actors performing in The Alchemist, was not a sharer. But the three partners in The Alchemist are making money out of customers who are themselves entrepreneurs. So the Alchemist dramatises a kind of theatrical supply chain in which each stage is trying to make a profit. The clerk, Dapper, wants a familiar to rifle with him at horses and win cups, a kind of spirit guide to the gambling world. 
the new Cambridge edition of the play cites as a possible source for this a 16th century master of Balliol called Adam Squire, who in the 1570s was almost expelled from the university for selling gambling spirits to some Somerset men who then complained to the justices when the spirits failed to make them win and they lost all their money. Abel Drugger has set up shop as a tobacconist and wants to know which way I should make my door by necromancy and where my shelves and where should be for boxes and which for pots. I would be glad to thrive, sir. He's interested in the dark arts of marketing. The wonderfully named Sir Epicure Mammon announces, this is the day wherein to all my friends I will pronounce the happy word, be rich. And he plans to send to all the plumbers and the pewterers and buy all their tin and lead up. All these metals will be turned into gold. The Puritan Ananias has brought all the congregation's pots and pans to get them transformed too. It's the ironic opposite of the vision of gold in Moore's Utopia. You remember there, chamber pots are made of gold. Here, useful objects and utilitarian metals are requisitioned in order to produce uselessly valuable gold. So the alchemist gives us a deeply commercialised proto-capitalist world in which the alchemist trio are making money, the people they trick are attempting to make money, and the theatre in which this all takes place is also making money. This intra-implication of theatre and commerce is a repeated aspect of Johnson's work, and quite an interesting thing to put against uh, one of the things we always used to say about Johnson was about classicism and learning. Uh, it, it's not that that's not there, it very much is, but here we've got a different, a different aspect to Johnson, about, which is more obviously commercial. Months before The Alchemist, this adept writer for both court masks and the public theatre had turned his hand to a quite different kind of promotional exercise. In 1609, Johnson wrote an entertainment to celebrate the opening of the first shopping centre, a high-end retail emporium developed by Robert Cecil called the Burse or the New Exchange on the Strand. A really interesting part of London's movement westwards, um, uh, away from the old top city of London, over towards Westminster. It's a really interesting sort of topographical uh, commercial development. Now, literature and shopping in this period would be a brilliant topic to research. I'm going to talk a bit more about it next week on Middleton. But the entertainment at Britain's birth, the entertainment at Britain's birth, as this Johnson pageant is known, is a great paean to shopping or a hymn to stuff. A prominent early speech in this entertainment by the shop boy asks in terms which are a list of consumer desirables, a kind of early modern catalogue. What do you lack? What is do you buy? Very fine china stuffs of all kinds and qualities, china chains, china bracelets, china fans, then it goes on. Um, uh, caskets, umbrellas, sundials, hourglasses, looking glasses, crystal globes, waxen pictures, ostrich eggs, birds of paradise, musk cats, Indian mice, Indian rats, very fine cages for birds, billiard balls, purses, pipes, rattles, basins, ewers, cups, cans, voiders, toothpicks, targets, falchions, beards of all ages, wizards, spectacles, sea, what do you lack? The last item suggests cleverly that if you buy spectacles, you will then be able to see all the other stuff that you want. <laughs> now, if you're interested in, any th in, in kind of thing theory or in commercialism, then Britain's Burst is a wonderful short text to look at. It's volume three in the new Cambridge Ben Johnson. 
But the text also gives us a way to understand the significance of commerce and of capitalist models of organisation to the alchemist and to theatrical production more generally. We're used to a model of what the Renaissance is that stresses the rediscovery of classical literature or the influence of European aesthetic practice on English culture. Okay, that's usually what we say brings the Renaissance. It's a cultural uh, or artistic or kind of aesthetic phenomenon. Economic transformations are equally important to discover. So the idea that the Renaissance is an economic, mo- is, is this kind of economic movement as much as it's an artistic one, I think is something which contemporary criticism is pretty interested to look at. Early modern England clearly was, as historians have explored, a nascent capitalist market. Imports of luxury goods, including cloth, sugar, glass, porcelain, and watches, increased throughout the 16th century. There's something interesting about how time, a kind of commodified version of time in watches, uh, is part of that economy, uh, and th- th- that selling time somehow I think is relevant for what I'm going to talk about, the, the plotting of the alchemist in a minute. There were many opportunities and locations for what Lisa Jardine has dubbed bravura consumerism. It's a nice phrase, bravura consumerism. A combination of acquisition and self-display that was crucial to a theatricalised city. And the idea that humans were shaped by those purchases emerges very clearly from early modern discourse, from all kinds of things like sumptuary laws and you know, the, the rules about what you're allowed to wear, um, uh, scenes and uh, literary examples about going shopping and so on. Uh, the idea that humans are shaped by their purchases emerges very clearly. For wealthy individuals in early modern London, this was the first age of what economic theorists have dubbed homo consumericus, the human as consumer. And as we all well know, it's crucial to capitalist economies, we know it because we live in one, that in them you buy stuff you don't need. Indian mice, beards of all ages at Britain's births, tobacco in Abel Drugger's shop, good luck at the gambling table from the Blackfriars alchemists, a shilling seat in a swish indoor theatre. So how does Johnson stand in relation to this burgeoning capitalist organisation? First thing I think to say about Johnson is he's a kind of master of contradiction. Uh, he's a playwright perfectly capable of writing advertising copy in Britain's verse, and then uh, s- comedies which are satirical about consumerism, like The Devil is an Ass and perhaps to an extent The Alchemist. Johnson is a writer for whom self-contradiction is either forced by circumstance or embraced by personality. So does The Alchemist satirise the greedy aspirations of those men who flock to it and flock to them uh, with the, for the promise of wealth. Perhaps here, just for a minute, we might talk about the play's structure. Last week, when I was talking about Marlowe's Dr Faustus, I talked about the overwhelming teleological pressure of a play shaped by its ending. Probably it's just the proximity of my thinking about these two plays that's made them seem in some way interconnected. But Johnson's face does work as a kind of comic Mephistopheles, drawing people into the Kabbalistic mysteries of the master. But in one really important structural way, The Alchemist and Dr. Faustus are quite different. Notwithstanding the praise for Johnson's own artistic discipline and the mastery with, with which he structures his comedy, 
I'm not really sure he's all that good at endings. Or perhaps more specifically, he has an interesting trick that often seems anticlimactic in the theatre. Uh, Volconi is a good example of preempting his endings or having an apparent ending just before the real one, a couple of scenes before the real one, that's not in fact the end of the play. I think Johnson has difficulty with endings because his difficulty with a kind of wrapping up, uh, particularly morally perhaps, um, uh, which, which might be worth thinking about. But let's think uh, about how that premature ending works here in The Alchemist. <coughs> I think the ending that's not the ending in this play is the unexpected return of Lovewit, the master whose absence has enabled all this trickery to take place. While he's away, fearful of the plague, the trio have repurposed his house for their tricks. We might, of course, feel that his absence is the dramaturgical equivalent of the gun in the drawer or the shoe waiting to drop. It's a kind of structuring inevitability that, having been told he's away at the beginning, he's bound to come back. We're just waiting for that to happen. And return he does, entering the play at the beginning of Act 5 in consultation with various concerned neighbours who are describing the comings and goings in his house in his absence. Now we might imagine that Lovewit will immediately bring all this trickery to a conclusion. It doesn't really feel as if uh, his return as the master of the house is compatible with the antics that have been going on in his absence. And we're back perhaps to the paradox that his return, because the plague is abating, will close the impromptu theatre made in his house in the theatre district of Blackfriars. But Lovewit, the clues in the name, I guess, does no such thing. His return is not the end of the play. Having witnessed one of its most uh, hectic and one of its funniest scenes, where all the customers coincide, demanding their alchemical rewards, punctuated by Dapper, who is shouting from the privy, where he's been locked with a gingerbread gag in his mouth to keep him quiet, Lovewit takes face aside. You know that I'm an indulgent master. Face partly confesses, but really gives very little away. He identifies that one of Lovewit's rather OCD worries is that traffic in the house shut up against infection will have spread the plague. He reassures him, you need not fear the house. It was not visited. I mean, I think visited means visited by the plague. Of course, it was visited scores of times by all these people we've seen coming and going. And Lovewit asks, Lovewit adds to, it was not visited, but by me, says Lovewit, confirming the play's complex associations of theatre, plague, make-believe and authority. By way of recompense, Face offers, I'll help you to a widow, who could refuse, uh, well... Let's see your widow, says Lovewit. So Lovewit, far from ending the play, enters into his tricks for his own profit. In the end, he too is on the make, happy to find himself a young wife in the form of another wonderfully named Johnson character, Dame Pliant. Lovewit's name and his actions suggest a kind of indulgence towards the trickery the play has presented. And similarly, I think, the greed and the stupidity of the alchemist's customers makes it difficult for us to sympathise with them. Uh, and this may be one of the ways in which uh, the alchemist and, the, and Othello were quite an interesting pairing. If you think where we sympathise in Othello, um, most probably with uh, the trickster Iago, rather than with the, the duped 
Othello or the Duke Rodrigo. Uh, something similar is happening here. We are in this play from the inside. In it, with face subtle and dull from the opening scene, we begin <laughs> inside the alchemist's house and the other people come in. Uh, so we're already there. We've already got a vested interest in what's going on. We, like Lovewit, are unlikely to take a censorious view. In the end, Lovewit defends face against the angry claims of the girls whose money he has embezzled. So Johnson's satire seems non-punitive. It's less directed towards consumerism than towards the inevitability of consumerism. We live in an appetitive world, Johnson seems to acknowledge, a world of appetite. We're all in it for ourselves. Who can judge? Both Lovewit and Face ask for the audience's approbation at the end of the play. Given the convention of clapping when a play finishes, it's hard to imagine how audiences, even if they wanted to, could have withheld that forgiveness. So Johnson's attitude to the consumerism, I think, that structures the plot is ultimately lenient. Let's just think about another couple of ways in which the play engages with contemporary London. London's economic development um, that we've been talking about in the development of a, of a nascent capitalist economy is both a cause and an effect of massive population growth. In the 60 years from 1580 to 1640, London's population doubles from about 180,000 in 1580, 180,000 in 1580, to about 350,000 in 1640. The sense that the city is crowded is everywhere in this play. From the start, the tricksters in the house are worried about being overheard. The stage is repeatedly imagined as being cheek by jowl with unseen neighbours whose suspicions must not be aroused. As a sideline, The Alchemist is one of, probably one of very few early modern plays, I couldn't think of another one, but I'm sure there is one, on which it, uh, in which the stage on which the play is represented is actually physically larger than the fictional space that's being represented. Okay, we're so used to the stage uh, representing much bigger physical spaces than its own dimensions. It's quite interesting to think of it a different way around. The stage is almost certainly bigger than Lovewit's house. Um, uh, so, so there's a different kind of um, mimesis, I guess, there. The play's distinctive agoraphobia, then, its fear of large spaces, is a marked aspect of its dramaturgy. Perhaps that's a response to the increasingly privatised space of London life, perhaps to the enclosed dynamics of the Blackfriars stage. It must have felt a very different space to perform in than the open globe. Crampedness is an important note in this play, and in fact in Johnson more generally, lots of Johnson... Um, uh, plots take place in very confined spaces, but also lots of Johnson's characters are themselves uh, confined in particular behaviours <coughs> or in particular plots. Ian Donaldson has written brilliantly about this in his book, Johnson's Magic Houses. But the crowdedness of contemporary London also offers a kind of liberty. It offers the freedom of anonymity. Subtle, face and doll could only pull off their swindles in London the city has grown too big for people to know each other. Even neighbours don't know who lives in houses. Nobody seems to say, actually, that guy's the butler pretending to be um, uh, whoever he's pretending to be. Self-reinvention, then, is distinctly uh, possible, pr probably even necessary, amid the urban crowds. 
related to both the play's constraint and its liberty then, it's interesting to think that interiority in this play is spatial, not psychological. Interiority is it being absolutely explored, I think, here, but it's the interiority of the house, not of the human. The interiority of the house, and by extension, it's double in the theatre. So Johnson's play, I've been arguing, has a deeply textured metatheatre which draws a close parallel between two Blackfriars houses, both essentially belonging to Lovewitz, the house in the play and the house in which the play is being performed. And so far we've been broadly discussing one power of the philosopher's stone, wealth, the transformation of base metal into precious metal. But there is another property which is attached to a successful alchemical transformation, and that's the power to cure sickness, most particularly the plague. And I want to use the last short section of this lecture to try and relate the play back to plague. Now, the growth in London's population was often cited as one cause of frequent plague outbreaks, and indeed, modern analyses of, of its epidemiology rather confirm that population density in the city was one factor in the perennial cycles of pestilence. Plague and theatre were constantly collocated, both culturally and um, geographically. Plague, uh, was, the, the plague was thought to derive in the suburbs, the place of the theatre. Uh, it was associated with crowds, uh, with gathering together, and with immorality, all things which also attached to the theatre. Now, plague pathology must have been terrifyingly well known to London citizens. You don't have to be a modern hypochondriac to imagine that checking yourself for symptoms of the plague must have become almost a reflex. And there were plenty of those symptoms as Thomas Lodge, writing in 1603, wrote. Uh, alienation, frenzy, blueness and blackness appearing about the sores and carbuncles, and after their appearance, the sudden vanishings of the same, cold in the extreme parts, intolerable heat in the inward, unquenchable thirst, continually soundings, urines white and crude or red, troubled and black, Cold sweat about the forehead and face, cramps, blackness in the excrements of the body, stench and blueness, the flux of the belly, weakness of the heart, shortness of breath, great stench of the same, lack of sleep and appetite to eat, profound sleep, changing of colour in the face, exchange to paleness, blackness or blueness, cogitation or great unquietness. Uh, when you look at that list, it's sort of somehow hard to think you haven't got it or haven't got some part of it, but I guess that's, that's the... Um, uh, reading any list of symptoms is, is bound to produce that effect. One aspect of plague pathology I do want to highlight, though, is its speed. So there were lots of stories and anecdotes about how people you know, woke up fine uh, and then you know, by the end of the day were dead or went to bed feeling fine and never woke up. Uh, the speed by which uh, plague took hold of people and its apparent irreversibility, uh, although mortality rates were about uh, we think we're about 60%. There's definitely a kind of cultural sense that nobody recovers. Um, uh, and that, so, so speed and kind of uh, hurtling kind of inevitably towards death. That's the thing I want to think about. Writing in his pamphlet, News from Gravesend, the plague's unofficial poet laureate, Thomas Decker, identified how quickly it could turn over a person's state. There's one who in the morn with gold could have built castles. Now he's made a pillow to a wretch that prayed for half-penny arms with broken limb. The beggar now is above him. 
So he that yesterday was clad in purple robes and hourly had, even at his fingers' beck, the fees of bared heads and bended knees. Rich man's fawnings, poor man's prayers, lo, now he's taken by death, he lies of all forsaken. So two things there, speed, these things happen quickly, and um, social upheaval, that the rich man uh, is no longer elevated above the beggar. Uh, there's a kind of uh, lack of differentiation. Um, there's a great essay by René Girard, uh, called The Plague in <coughs> Literature, where he talks about the lack of differentiation about the plague uh, being its most terrifying aspect. More positively, perhaps, but still with a shadow behind it, in Twelfth Night, Shakespeare's Olivia remarks on her sudden infatuation with Cesario, how now, even so quickly, may one catch the plague. So, one of plague's most prominent symptoms, therefore, was its speed and its reversal of fortune. It makes, um, I think that makes farce the genre of acceleration the most appropriate genre in which to depict it. Now, explicit plague references abound in the alchemist, as we've already seen. Mammon promises that with the philosopher's stone, I'll undertake with all to fright the plague out of the kingdom in three months. And Surly remarks uh, sardonically, I'll be bound, the players shall sing your praises then. Plague's impact on the theatre was one of its most visible communal signs. When deaths from plague in the city exceeded an, some kind of nominated total, accounts are divided whether that total was 30 or 40, or whether the number had increased to reflect overall population growth. But anyway, when uh, death figures exceeded this number, the theatres were closed. Lovewit has left his house shut up against infection in the hands of his servants. And those servants cheerfully explain at the beginning, fear not him, while there dies one a week of the plague, he's safe from thinking toward London. So as we've already discussed then, the plague as an enabling or restricting context is part of the alchemist's negotiation of its fictional and actual Londons. But what I want to try to suggest in conclusion is that the deep imprint of time and of time running out in this play is itself a kind of more disguised response to plague pathology. That superb plotting of the play with which I began, which everybody from Coleridge on talks about, is largely a matter of timing. Ian Donaldson talks about clockwork comedy in a great essay on the play. These are split-second timings Characters leave and enter, plot lines converge, and there's a speeding sense of spinning plates. For Donaldson, this is more than the t technical perfection of farce, but a more cosmic kind of rational sense of a universe which proceeds in an orderly and clockwork way. So for Donaldson, saying this is a play like clockwork says, in fact, it's all under control. It's all proceeding in a kind of regulated way. It's, it's an orderly system, even as it looks disorderly. I think I want slightly to modify this interpretation and to suggest that perhaps the play's speed and inexorability is an attempt to comically re-engineer plague philosophy. Perhaps that hectic pace of the alchemist, a barely suppressed sense of morbid rapidity and panic, seeps into Johnson's most time-conscious and plague-conscious play. Or to put it another way, the alchemist's preoccupation with time and with control 
might itself be a response to the swift, uncontrollable onset of contemporary plague. The house from which the master has, has escaped the plague and the theatre whose closure marks the extent of the disease's hold on the city, perhaps these carefully represented locations breed themselves a kind of comic infection. It's interesting to wonder whether the play is an attempt redemptively to refigure plague or a disguised version of the way it ravages everything in its path. So, today I've been thinking about time, about comic structure, about consumerism and plague in Johnson's The Alchemist. Next week I'm going to talk about Middleton's Chase Made in Cheapside, where I'll be talking, I think, mostly about sex and shopping. Do come back then, watch out for sores, carbuncles and especially black excrements in the meantime. <laughs>